Welcome to this special episode of the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I am here with the one and only Dr. Carrie Jones to do our first Q&A session. This is a session where we're going to take the questions we know that you guys have asked about recent podcast episodes and questions we get asked all the time and answer them. I wanted to start off, Dr. Carey, by asking you, just, I know you are a voracious learner. You've recently been to several really cool conferences. Before we dive into questions about our recent episodes, tell us, what's your favorite thing you've learned recently? Oh my gosh. One of the things that, in fact, this does relate to one of our episodes of Dr. Paul Anderson and Long COVID, but I was recently at a conference with Dr. Jeff Bland, who is the godfather of functional medicine, and he was talking about a study with long COVID and low serotonin. And I thought, man, a lot of our guests, your episode included, really relates back to gut health, brain health, immune health, and serotonin and how all that cycles. Now, obviously, serotonin is not the only kicker to long COVID or any long viral anything, but it was one spoke in the bike wheel. And I thought, there's so much we can do to support serotonin, whether it's I think of your interview all the time. How do we make serotonin? But even just our gut health and how that impacts serotonin. That's probably the biggest thing that I have learned in the last week and tied it to our podcast. This is so cool and want to share it. You were at an advanced invite-only neuroinflammation conference with Dr. Bland. And it makes sense because what we're seeing, and this ties in with your episode with Erica Lugo that you just did, where she talked a lot about severe depression. And part of what we know causes severe depression is not only serotonin and neurotransmitter issues, but neuroinflammation. And that's because neuroinflammation impairs our cell's ability to release neurotransmitters and respond to neurotransmitters appropriately. There's actually things we can check in the blood to tell us if that's happening to you guys at home. We can dive deep into that. I was going to say that there's even literature to show that if you have a dysfunctional microbiome, which is where you make a lot of neurotransmitters for your body, it can impact things like your personality. While a dysfunctional microbiome will also impact your brain and your neuro health, you may be angry or sad or happy or motivated or unmotivated or distracted because of the things going on with your gut microbiome. Because over 50% of our cells are not of us. They're microbes. I joke now, it's my new joke, Have you been kind to your microbiome lately? Because if you wake up tomorrow in a bad mood or unmotivated or angry, it may be them getting a little karma. You didn't treat me very well yesterday. (laughs) Let's try to do better today. Be kind to your microbiome as a start. And we know that does go up and impact the brain. (laughs) I love it. Be kind to your bugs for sure. (laughs) Be kind to your bugs. Yeah. Let's talk about mood and biomarkers. Yeah. We have a podcast we did together a while ago where we talked about how would you even make serotonin? And as a refresher, guys, you take tryptophan, which is an amino acid you can only get from protein-containing foods, and then you combine it with things like B9, B12, B6. Tetrahydrobiopterin is made from B9 and B12. The question then becomes, where do you get those from? The top source of B6 is garbanzo beans. For those of you who don't remember, top source of B12 and folate are usually animal foods like beef liver. You can also get them in a supplement. But if you don't have enough of those, you cannot make enough serotonin. But then if we talk about biomarkers, there's a couple of amazing studies I'll tell you guys about. One of them is called Biomarkers of Suicide Attempt Behavior Toward a Biological Model of Risk. And I would talk with my parents of kids who were having really severe depression and give them this paper to read in practice. 
Because what it does is actually go through and say, we can look at people's blood and tell how depressed they're going to be. They can take a survey, but it really is starting to shift the way we think about mental health disorders when you don't even have to have a therapy session. You can just look at someone's blood and go like, hey, this is probably pretty severe depression. And what we see over and over again is that markers of reactive oxygen species are elevated in these disorders. Reactive oxygen species cause a lot of havoc. They damage your cell membranes. And part of the way we buffer that damage is with antioxidants. One of the questions I always get asked, Dr. Carey, is what are the top sources of antioxidants? What are antioxidants? (laughs) I don't know if you have a quick answer for that that you want to give. Yeah, I always say, think of the reactive oxygen species like little fires or big fires. So your antioxidants are the fire trucks and the firemen and women who come and help put them out, who come and help water them down so that you don't have little fires going on in your body. And when we think of antioxidants, the biggest, easiest thing I say, and it says by a lot of people, is to eat the rainbow. The more colorful type of foods that you eat, whether it's yellow, whether it's red, whether it's green, whether it's blue, think of blueberries, think of your greens, even green tea, think of your peppers, also the fruits, your veggies, your roots, those can be really helpful because they're full of these antioxidants. They're full of fire trucks and firemen and firewomen that are going to come in and help put out these fires for your health. That's great. And for what you could check in your blood, this podcast is sponsored by Rupa Health, which is making it easier for people all over the country to get tested for levels of these antioxidants. Because you might be wondering, okay, first of all, what are the micronutrients? Tell me the biomarkers I'd have to check to know if I have enough. Another paper you guys need to know about, and we talked about this before, the role of nutrients in protecting mitochondrial function and neurotransmitter signaling implications for the treatment of depression, PTSD, and suicidal behaviors is like the paper if you don't read anything else. Read this. The nutrients that they discussed were omega-3 fatty acids, antioxidants like vitamin C and zinc, B vitamins like B12 and folate, and magnesium. You can test for all of those in the blood. You can rewind and listen to that list again. And the reason is because those are a really good proxy of your total antioxidant capacity. Does your blood have enough antioxidants to keep you from being severely depressed? That is very easy to check with a blood test. Now, Dr. Carey, tell folks, how would you measure zinc and magnesium? Because there's a couple different ways to measure it. And I always get asked this. Should we measure serum? Should we measure (laughs) RBC? What's your opinion? I generally do RBC. I generally do RBC when I'm doing blood. And you're right. You can look at the white blood cells. There's various, you can look at hair tissue mineral analysis. There's a few even aspects of the body fluid that you can test. But usually it's the RBC that I go for. Now, magnesium is a hard one because the large majority of your magnesium are in your tissues and in your bones. A very tiny percent is actually out in your blood. And for some people can be misleading because you might see your magnesium on a blood marker looks okay. But again, it's the equivalent of, if you look down my street right now, you would see no cars on the street because it's pouring down rain in a miserable day. But on a sunny day, you would see a whole lot of people and cars out on the street walking their dogs, being really interactive. That's like magnesium. Most of the magnesium are in the house. If you look down my street, you'd be like, oh my gosh, there's no magnesium. But on a sunny day, you would see it out in the blood. Because most of the magnesium wants to be in your tissues and bones, When you draw blood, just because you have that normal marker doesn't necessarily mean anything. But if it's low, you have nothing out in the blood at all, big indicator that you need to have more magnesium. And that's why sometimes testing some of these nutrients, magnesium is a big one, can feel a little bit tricky because where is it in the body most of the time? Yeah. It's inside. It's in the house. RBC stands for red blood cell. And the reason we check that 
at home, people who are listening, is because red blood cells typically live in the body about 120 days. When you look at a red blood cell and you see how much magnesium does that contain, it gives you an idea of how much magnesium has been around for the last couple of months, rather than how much happens to be in your blood at the time we draw it. Now, I will say most of the research we have about magnesium and mood actually was done using serum magnesium levels. And they still found that those were a lot lower in people with severe depression and anxiety than they were in people who did not have those disorders. So if you're someone who's thinking, shoot, I'm looking at the cost. Serum magnesium is much cheaper than red blood cell magnesium. And I'm really strapped for cash right now. Do the serum. And we always talk about this. Do an audit of your diet to see if you're getting enough. Use something like MyFitnessPal or Chronometer that actually gives you a breakdown of the micronutrients you eat. Put in a couple sample days and see. And most folks are shocked that they're not getting even the bare minimum that's being recommended by the USDA or the NIH for optimal intake. You could start there. We could dive deeper into testing for these biomarkers, but (laughs) I want to take a minute and take a break for a second because... A question for me that came up, I was listening to you and Erica talk and I was listening to her talk about just how hard of a time that was for her when she was so depressed and how she felt so lucky to be able to look at her hormonal health and how a big part of what was going on with her when she was depressed was she had thyroid issues and she was getting multiple periods a month. Can you talk to our listeners about if somebody came into you and their only symptom was low mood, what are the hormones you check and why do they have a link to mood? especially in females, and males as well, but because our hormones, in a cycling woman, our hormones shift a little bit every day. That little shift every day can get in sometimes be a big shift or a no shift, and then that directly impacts our greater body. As an example, the two main hormones we talk about a lot are the estrogen, estradiol, and progesterone. And estradiol actually plays a huge role in that neurotransmitter I said earlier, serotonin. If you don't have enough estradiol, or you have too much estradiol, you will negatively impact your serotonin. Estradiol is allowed to go pretty much anywhere in the body. It can go all through your brain and bind to receptors. It plays a role in dopamine. It plays a little role in GABA. It's allowed to go all through your immune system. If you don't have enough estradiol, it can impact your immune system negatively. As Dr. Kate said, neuroinflammation, big cause for mental health issues such as depression. On the flip side, Let's talk about progesterone. Progesterone, when it breaks down, it turns into something called aloe, not the plant, but A-L-O. And aloe can cross up into the blood-brain barrier and activate your GABA receptors. Your GABA receptors are your big inhibitory receptors. They're anti-anxiety. They are the gas or the, the brake pedal to your gas. They calm you down. If you don't have a lot of progesterone, especially in that second half of your cycle, you may feel more anxious along with your depression. You may have more insomnia along with your depression because you don't have that brake pedal. Knowing just those two hormones alone, absolutely thyroid plays a big role. Absolutely cortisol plays a big role. But sometimes women are like, I don't understand while leading up to my period, I feel more depressed or I feel more anxious or I'm low-grade depressed, but as I get close to my period, I'm high-grade depressed. What is this about? That shift in hormone can really impact how our brain our mood, our immune system, all the things do or don't function. That's why if it's in your budget and you're talking with your practitioner, definitely checking your hormones out, especially as you lead up to your period, can be so helpful. And it's also why women going into perimenopause and menopause notice a mood shift for the worst sometimes. They will say, 
I've never had depression. Now I have depression. I never had anxiety. Now I have anxiety. I never had overwhelm. Now I'm feeling overwhelmed. What is this about? Well, your hormones are downshifting. It's impacting your neurotransmitters and resulting in what you're feeling, this emotional change, this personality change. We have to take hormones seriously. We have to really pay attention. And that's what Erica found as part of her whole treatment plan. I'm so glad we have you on the line right now because even my focus was so much of mental health. And a few years ago, there was so much research coming out about women who were going into menopause and getting diagnosed for the first time with things like schizophrenia or severe OCD, disorders that we usually see occur much younger. And the researchers were pretty much in consensus that it had a lot to do with estrogen because estrogen sensitizes your serotonin receptors. It will change the way your receptors respond to serotonin. And just like you said, when you lose that progesterone spike every month when you're no longer ovulating, you lose a lot of that calming hormone. Somebody may be thinking, I asked my doctor to check my hormones. (laughs) And they said, if I'm getting a period, I don't need to. And they told me that they didn't even know how. What are some specific things that someone can ask for if they want to figure out if their hormones are playing a role in their symptoms? First of all, if you've asked your practitioner and they give you that response, you get a period, this is common, I hear it from all my patients, please keep in mind, it's entirely possible we need to find you a new practitioner. A practitioner who's maybe a little more hormonally savvy doesn't mean you have to get rid of that practitioner that you have. Maybe hormones just isn't their thing, and that's totally okay. Secondly, understanding where you are in your cycle is the big key. If you are ovulating, you want to count forward five to seven days and ask to have your hormones tested then. Let's pretend you went and got saw your doctor today or your practitioner today randomly at a two o'clock appointment. And they are like, okay, I'll run your hormones. Just go to the lab. Make sure you're at the right part of your cycle. You might have to come back. You want to make sure you're five to seven days out from ovulation. And if you don't know if you ovulate, it's usually around the middle of your cycle. You tend to have other symptoms. Maybe you feel little twinges or cramps. Maybe you get vaginal discharge changes. Maybe you're tracking it on an app. Maybe you notice if you've got some sort of wearable, like an Apple Watch or a Whoop Band or an Aura Ring, your temperature goes up, which indicates ovulation. Maybe you can figure it out that way and count forward and do your estrogen, estradiol, and progesterone at that time. The reason we'd like that time is because we know your progesterone is supposed to be high then. It's low in other parts of your cycle, but high at that point. And I want to catch you at your peak. I want to make sure I know that you ovulate and you pump out good amounts of progesterone relative to estradiol. It's timing and then just asking, I'd like to get an estradiol and progesterone. Now, we would love to see other hormones. I would love to see your testosterone, your free and total testosterone. I would love to see a full thyroid panel. And still, there is some research to indicate As a cycling woman, your thyroid, your TSH, your thyroid-stimulating hormone, shifts a little bit with your cycle. It can actually increase with ovulation in some women. If you're going to get your thyroid tested, you want to get it tested around the same time of your cycle all the time so you don't have that outside influence of ovulation. Just go ahead and get it done after ovulation, but get it at that date every time you recheck your thyroid. And I would love to see even your cortisol. We No, if somebody says, do you feel stressed? You say yes, but I'd like to know how much. I'd like to see it actually through the day. I'd like to know what's going on, especially if you struggle with sleep or if you struggle to get up in the morning, which is a little bit more involved than a blood test. But even just checking some of the adrenal markers, DHEA, 
DHEAS, if they are willing to do a more expanded hormone panel, it's such a great idea and gives us such great feedback that feeds into symptoms such as mental health, depression, anxiety, fatigue, motivation. I'd love to see that stuff. We have a really cool episode that's going to come out in a few weeks with Wendy Warner where she talks about adrenal hormones. We talk about hormones and if you're listening and you're someone who's in a female body, then you're like, okay, estrogen, progesterone, I'm good. No. (laughs) Your adrenal glands make DHEA and DHEA can become testosterone, estrogen. DHEA and testosterone are what gives you this feeling of vitality and the ability to build muscle. And so many patients I would see of both sexes would come in my practice depressed, feeling just anxious and almost weak. We'd run their DHEA and testosterone, they'd be low. And we just make lifestyle changes to boost that back up. And they would literally come in being like, I did not realize that I felt like I was 70, 80, 90 years old when I'm actually 35. Now that my hormones are normal, my DHEA and testosterone, we may not have even touched their estrogen and progesterone yet. Now that those are normal, I literally feel strong and vital. I'm building muscle now in the gym rather than just breaking my body down. And this is so true. Your only symptom, guys, may be that you just feel down. You feel depressed, you feel weak, you feel anxious. It's the same as you go into menopause. If you're in the late throes of perimenopause or heading into menopause, that could also be an additional symptom you're feeling. You may feel hot flashes, you may feel night sweats, you may be having sleep issues or weight gain, but also pay attention, please, to your mood, to your motivation, to your strength, to your physical energy, not just your mental energy, because these hormones really do play a role. And you may have been the best multitasking, most motivated type A person in your 20s, in your 30s, in your 40s. And then as menopause starts to take effect and those hormones drop, you may notice a decline. You don't feel like yourself. People are pointing it out to me. And there is so much we can do and so much help. And that's why I love the podcast and talking with Kate about this and all the amazing guests we have because we want this information very public and very free and available so you can be proactive about it and not just sink further and further. Yeah, for sure. And we often think of thyroid as a, yeah, it's a hormone, but it's a metabolic hormone. Thyroid's (laughs) really your master hormone. The T3. Let's talk about T3. (laughs) Let's talk about it because thyroid hormone tells all your other cells what to do. And I've seen people who come in with a TSH that's really high. And let's talk through the biochemistry that for the people at home who don't understand it, but basically they've got hypothyroidism and they just thought they were depressed and lazy and fat. And they're like, it's my fault because I don't have any energy to go to the gym or I don't have any willpower all of a sudden. And it's no, you just have no cellular energy. So you can't even get out of bed. And then your adrenals and your ovaries or your testes cannot make as much hormone as they're supposed to make because their metabolism has been downregulated by your hypothyroidism. Can you tell people, yeah, what's T3? What's TSH? (laughs) When we say get a thyroid panel, what does that mean? I love that you said the energy part of it and the mitochondria because there's a great paper by Dr. Joe Pizzorno and he talks about the mitochondria. And we all learned in school, the mitochondria are cellular powerhouses, quite literally like a AA battery. And we have the equivalent in our day, the amount our mitochondria, like 1200 watts. Think about your light bulb. Think about walking into a dimly lit restaurant where you're like, I can't read the menu. I feel like I'm in a six watt light bulb. And think of the light bulbs maybe now in your kitchen, which are usually brighter and lighter so that you can see as you're cooking and cleaning and doing all the things in your kitchen. And that's the same in your body. If your mitochondria aren't able to put out ATP, your actual 
AA batteries, then you're going to feel like you're in that six-watt restaurant and you can't see and you can't wake your way around. So you have to move slow and you have to pull out your phone and turn the flashlight on and your body feels the same way. Now, a big factor in that, there are a lot of factors, but a big factor in that is T3. Your brain, your hypothalamus, which is a part of your brain, tells your pituitary that we're going to make thyroid. Today's the day. We're going to make thyroid. So you make TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, which is aptly named because it's going to go down to your thyroid gland and tell your thyroid gland to make T4. T stands for tyrosine. 4 stands for iodine. T4 and a little bit of T3, just like a little bit. And they go out into circulation because they're like, all right, cool. I'm going to go do my job. Now out in circulation, in your liver, in your tissues, most of that T4, hopefully, cross fingers, gets converted into the T3. Again, T stands for tyrosine. Three stands for iodine. There's three iodine on there. Now, T3 is your big active metabolic hormone. It turns the lights on. It turns the dimmer switch all the way up. It makes it bright. It helps things metabolize, do their job, function. Everything down to hair growth, how your stomach pushes food through, how you do or don't absorb, how your cells work, how your hormones are made. Our immune system, it plays a big role in all of this. But unfortunately, because our actual thyroid gland puts out majority T4, which is not the big active one, T3 is what we're going after, we can get this mismatch in lab testing because maybe your practitioner said, I just run a TSH, which is the guideline, but it doesn't make it right because it's evaluating only from the brain to the thyroid. We still need to evaluate from the thyroid out into your system. And if your body is able to convert your free T4, into free T3? Or are you converting into other things that are maybe not helpful? Reverse T3. By understanding this whole physiology and understanding that T3 is really what's helpful in making the world go round, a lot of people would come into my practice and say, I'm only on a T4 medication and I don't feel any better. I'm like, ah, I bet you're not converting. We have to figure out why you're not converting. Or I only had a TSH run. My practitioner ran a TSH and I'm normal. I'm completely in the range. Their range... Dr. Kate's range, my range. Dr. Kate and I probably have the same range. It's a little different. We're going for optimal, not what the standard is. But if even if it's in the optimal range, that only tells me how your brain is communicating to your thyroid. It doesn't actually tell me what's happening out in circulation because your thyroid and your brain are very controlled. Like the best outcome, they want to stay in the reference range. Thyroid's a lot more complicated than here, take this one test. It's a few tests and then we have to figure out what's going on. But please know, it's so important, if, just as Dr. Kate said, if your T3 isn't great, then your metabolic health isn't going to be great. You're not going to get those AA batteries. You're going to have dim lights. You're going to struggle to make hormones, plus so many other things. We love to talk about thyroid here on this show. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll just say right out front, like anybody who comes in with fatigue that isn't improving or that's been a serious problem for them and it's derailing their life, that's who you want to do the thyroid panel for. It makes sense if your doctor's doing your general screening and they're like, how much energy do you have? And you're like, oh, 10 out of 10, I'm great. And they're not going to go digging. But you're within your rights to say, hey, we've checked my TSH and it's normal. I want to dig a bit deeper. I'm really being sidelined by this fatigue. That is when you test for those other biomarkers. And don't be afraid to push for that, guys. And we mentioned before two things. We mentioned 
let's get another practitioner on their team who's actually really well-versed in this. Dr. Carey, you are so well-connected. I want you to tell people, if your friend called you and said, I'm in Alaska or I'm in Tennessee and I want to <laughs> find somebody to help me, where do you tell them to start looking? Honestly, one of the things locally they can type in, of course, everyone can Google search functional doctor or holistic doctor, naturopathic doctor. But if that's a struggle, two places I recommend a lot. One is to go to naturopathic.org.org and there's a find a practitioner. You can go by zip code, you go by area of interest, you can look them up. I do also direct people to the Institute for Functional Medicine, ifm.com. They also have a find a practitioner. And then I'm not going to lie, I'm going to say it right here on this podcast, cross my fingers. I'm hoping Rupa comes up with a find a practitioner here soon because we have such great practitioners who come on the podcast, who come through the platform, and it would be amazing to be able to search them by zip code, by area of expertise, by telehealth, by in-person, and be able to direct people. There are definitely great resources out there. It's in the pipeline, y'all. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> I was hoping. We've heard the request. I'm hoping. And we will be answering. Yeah, that's helpful because it gives people a place to start with organizations that train or certify practitioners to think the way we're talking about. Talk to us about T3. So you mentioned sometimes people have low T3. I know one reason I would explain to my clients, like your body might be converting it to reverse T3 if you're really stressed. And your body will do that on purpose to protect your cells. Something a lot of people don't know is one of the contraindications to thyroid therapies, which means one of the reasons you could, it would be not okay to give someone thyroid medicine, thyroid hormone is if they have adrenal insufficiency. We're taught to evaluate people and make sure that their adrenals are functioning and that they're making enough cortisol and they're making enough DHEA because if you take thyroid hormone and you give that to someone and then you push adrenals that are really unhealthy and not working, you can actually make that person really sick. Your body actually knows this as well. If you're really stressed out, if you're really depleted and your adrenals cannot handle being pushed to make more hormone, your body will start to shunt some of that T3 into reverse T3 to protect you. Now, sometimes you want it to stop coddling you as much. <laughs> and you're like, I know I'm stressed, but I also need energy. What are some of the other reasons, Dr. Carey, that somebody might have low T3? A big one is inflammation. We will actually see the low T free T3 with high cortisol as well. If you are in an acute state of stress, whether it's illness, whether it's infection or whether it's situational of what you're going through right now. But we will also see it in inflammations. Wherever your inflammation is from, whatever causes it, it puts out these little signals called cytokines. They're like red flares that really disrupt the body. When, just as you said, when the cell starts to see all these red flares come out, all these inflammatory cytokines, it will divert the T3. Do you know what? We need to maybe batten down the hatches. We maybe need to protect ourselves. We maybe need to not burn through all the resources that we have. I don't know what's going on. It appears he or she is sick and we need to take care of this right now within the cell and within the body. And those are probably the two biggest. Now, I also do see lack of nutrients to get from T4 to T3. If you just are a depletion, lack of absorption, gut issues where you can't absorb Definitely use the apps that Dr. Kate mentioned. See if you're getting in the nutrients you even need to support the body and get that T4 to T3. Every, even the tyrosine and the iodine. Zinc is a big one. We've already mentioned zinc. Selenium is a big one. Magnesium is a big one. Believe it or not, all of these really help your thyroid hormones do their job. Between nutrients, inflammation, cortisol, those are some big guns that help or don't help <laughs> You make T3. 
I think people would be shocked. People hear us talk about nutrients and I think that they think, ugh, I'm like overweight. I wish I had less nutrients. I'm probably getting more than enough of these. If you guys go do that nutrition audit of your typical intake and you are getting 100% magnesium, iodine, selenium, and tyrosine, you write to me and Dr. Carrie and you tell us, I will give you a prize. I will personally send you, don't cheat. <laughs> but I'm so confident that you're not because I've done that analysis with thousands of people. And not a single person is getting enough. Our government put iodine in salt because our population was so deficient in iodine several decades ago that people were getting goiter and hypothyroidism because our soils just don't even have enough. Even if you eat really good food sources of iodine, you may not still be getting enough in America. That's why we started fortifying foods with it. There's a lot you have to consider when you think about optimizing these nutrients, but starting by checking your intake of them and the amount in your blood is a really good place to start. I know we could talk about that right all day long. We should probably move on. Yeah. Okay, we had a couple other really cool episodes this month. <laughs> I had a couple more questions come in about them, but I want to give you space, Dr. Carey. Did you have people asking you or listening to some of our more recent episodes? ADHD, man, ADHD. That's the one. Here's why ADHD comes up so much, especially on social media now. We are seeing, thank goodness, the education around ADHD and adults. How many missed adults... Maybe they were not in the ADHD generation of getting diagnosed as kids now. It's identified a lot faster and sooner. But I feel like that's just an amazing umbrella topic just to go, Kate, what was your favorite takeaway? Because while we absolutely, it's important in children, the number of adults who are taking quizzes, seeing their practitioners going, oh crap, that's me. This is what I've had my whole life and I've struggled and I didn't know it. And to listen to the podcast, I was like, oh, there's so much help available. Yeah. I love it. Where it was your takeaway? I think first, get an assessment. If you think you might have it, you might have it, is my first encouragement to you guys. And if you do have ADHD, it needs to be treated. How you treat it is up to you. But not treating it is like needing glasses and just deciding you're not going to wear glasses. That makes no sense. But that's how we talk about ADHD in our society. We have parents who don't want their kids to get treatment for the ADHD because they don't believe it's real. Stop. If you've got it, treat it. Now you've got a ton of options. You can do exercise, nutrients, herbs, lifestyle. And honestly, you should do it all. And you should do it all while you're waiting for your psychiatry appointment because it's probably going to take you three months to get in. And most psychiatrists, if you are an adult, are not going to prescribe you a stimulant or a medication right away. They're going to want you to try other things because stimulants come with side effects. And they can be dangerous, particularly if you have a heart issue. What I would say is if you think you have a diagnosis, talk to your primary care. They can put you in the right direction, get you the referral. And in the meantime, start trying some of the things Dr. Greenblatt talked about. You could start with the lowest hanging fruit, optimize your sleep. People with ADHD have trouble with what's called sleep onset, which means that normally it takes them about 30 minutes longer to fall asleep than somebody else. It's particularly true for kids. You guys, if you're parents with kids with ADHD, bedtime can be really tough. Things like a teeny tiny amount of melatonin, like 0.3 milligrams have been established to help that. And when your kids with ADHD get more sleep or when you get more sleep, your symptoms are more controlled. Easy. Dr. Greenblatt talked about having a bedtime routine. Nutrients that we know are involved, zinc, copper, iron, protein, get those checked. There are a lot of women, people in female bodies who are menstruating, who have ADHD, and they feel like their symptoms are getting worse and worse, even on medication. And that could just be because they're getting more and more anemic. They weren't getting 
enough iron to begin with, maybe they're maybe losing a lot of blood every time they get a period. We actually know that even if you don't have iron deficiency anemia, if we give people iron along with their stimulant medications, the medications work better. Iron is critically important. And if you're in a female body and maybe your ADHD got missed as a kid because it wasn't that bad, maybe you got your period at 12 or 13. Now you've been bleeding for years and years and not really repleting your iron. And now it's much, much worse. It could just be that mineral. Iron is really powerful. It determines how much oxygen you deliver to your brain. (laughs) You can't focus without oxygen. (laughs) So stuff like that. And then exercise. If you have ADHD, look, I'm with you guys. I have ADHD. I'm pretty open about that. And I treat it naturally. And the way I tell people to look at it is consider yourself lucky because you're going to have to exercise your entire life. (laughs) You're going to have to exercise, get enough protein and get enough nutrients for the rest of your life and get enough sleep. Oh, poor you. You're going to be healthier. You'll be healthier for it if you do it right. You just have an early alarm signal, which is your attention. You're going to notice when you are underslept, undermoved, undernourished much more quickly, maybe than somebody whose issue is actually like heart disease. They may go 10 years not knowing any of that until they have a heart attack. If you have ADHD, that's not going to be your story. You and everyone you love is going to know when you're not doing things optimally for your health. One of the things we would talk about in my clinic that I thought was so cute, I started it with my kids with ADHD. What I would tell them is, okay, you have ADHD. That means you were born with too many wiggles. Every day you wake up and you have more wiggles than your friends. You just have to get them out every day. And they'd be like, oh, okay, cool. And then when they're having symptoms, their parents would say to them, you have too many wiggles right now, go run outside or go do some jumping jacks or whatever it was that the kid liked to do to move. But what was so cute to me is then the parents would start to come in. And usually because ADHD has such strong genetic components, usually one of the parents also had ADHD. And they'd be like, Kate, I think I have too many wiggles. (laughs) And I'm like, you do? Yeah. That's adorable. Oh my God. All the adults in my clinic were like, I have too many wiggles, Dr. Kate, help. And the way to do it is just to move. You don't have to move for a long time. It doesn't have to be like if you're not an exerciser and you're like, that sounds terrible. It can be as simple as five minutes of jumping. We know that statistically that improves attention and focus for people with ADHD. Get a rebounder and let yourself watch the trash TV show or whatever you want to watch, but just make sure you're doing some jumping jacks or marching in place and something as simple as five minutes. And if you're a parent of a kid with ADHD and you both have it, you can both exercise together and there is nothing better than that. We had a couple kids and parent duos with ADHD in our trauma-informed powerlifting program we used to run at my practice. And it was so good for both of them to work out together because think about the things we do to bond with our kids. A lot of times it's going to see a movie or watch TV. If you can lift with your kid and you build that habit and you both feel strong and you both feel powerful. We had one, two actually groups, like teenage girls and their parents. First day they came in, they wouldn't even talk to each other. They were so mad, but whatever they were fighting about that day. They were just like not getting along. Yeah. The last yeah. day when we PR'd, which basically means you see how heavy you can lift with the lifts you've learned. These girls were lifting between 150 and 200 pounds off the ground and they were hugging their moms, right? In eight weeks. Good for them. They were hugging their moms. They were celebrating the smiles on both of their faces. It was so dramatic. Yeah, there's so much you guys can do. I could talk for hours, as you know, Dr. Carey. But yeah, that's what I took away. 
I do want to say you mentioned iron and getting oxygen in the brain, but I think a lot of adults forget about sleep apnea and mouth breathing. And I have a lot of ADHD friends who are like, once I started mouth taping or once I got the sleep study, once I bit the bullet and got the sleep study and realized I wasn't getting any freaking oxygen in my brain, it made a world of difference. And even if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't really think I have ADHD, but I definitely get mental fatigue, let's say, say the opposite spectrum. Maybe you're not getting any oxygen in your brain. Maybe it's time for a sleep study. Maybe you're doing a lot of mouth breathing and paying attention to that because we don't want to be breathing out of our mouth. We want to breathe out of our nose and get our oxygen levels going. And if you wear a wearable that looks at oxygenation through the night especially, you can see when you have disruptions and that can be a little cheater test of, oh, we've got to get this evaluated. Same thing. I think we talked about this. You guys will hear this on, I think, Gary Kaplan's podcast that's going to come out in a few weeks. If you open your mouth and you look in your throat and you or even your kid have tonsils that are almost touching, Mm -hmm. that is going to get in the way of effectively breathing at night. And Dr. Carey, you have a whole episode that you did on the airway and attention. Remind everybody which one if they want to go look that up. Yes. There's one on specifically on sleep and sleep health. And then you had one with the dentist. Dr. Stacy, who actually I'm going to dinner with tonight. That's like perfect timing. <laughs> we have a couple on that with sleep. And Stacy's a pediatric, she's a holistic pediatric dentist. She goes really into the aspect with kids. And then we have Dr. Smiley, who is the other dentist who was very fixated in a great way on jaw placement. She goes into the mandible and kids and adults and sleep and breathing. We have a couple of episodes to really help walk you through that. We have an episode on sleep and sleep apnea. We have Dr. Smiley and we have Dr. Stacy. We had a few. We've had a few and we're going to keep having more because sleep is so critical. I don't know about you, but I referred so many of my clients to go get sleep studies. And it's scary. People freak out. I don't want the wires. I can't sleep with that. I don't want to be told I have sleep apnea. One of the big sleep study specialists that I would refer to here in Portland all the time when I was in practice, he said, one of the biggest transitions that somebody needs a sleep study is when they go into menopause. He goes, you might not snore, you may be great, and then you lose your estradiol, and it changes all your oral maxillary stuff, and you're at a much higher risk for sleep apnea. So he said, if you are transitioning into menopause, and obviously with the transition to menopause, a lot of sleep things can happen. You can't fall asleep, you can't stay asleep, you have night sweats. Please go get a sleep study, request a sleep study, because that drop in estrogen changes things for the worse, and we want to help. And I was like, that's such good information, and it stuck with me. He probably told me that 15 years ago, and I see it in the literature all the time now. And if you're scared, you're going to find out you do have sleep apnea and you don't want to use a CPAP. There's other things you can do. They have technology now that's going to either move your tongue out of the way. They also have technology that will shrink your tongue. If you've gained a lot of weight rapidly, your tongue has fat deposits in it. And that could be part of what's obstructing your breathing. They have different therapies that will shrink that or different things that maybe will push your jaw forward. Yeah. And also sometimes you can start treating your sleep apnea. It'll improve your metabolism. Your body will get to a place where you don't have excess tissue that's obstructing your breathing. And then you can go off the machine. But I had so many folks who had this idea where they're like, I know I have sleep apnea because I started snoring after I gained weight. So I'm just going to lose the weight and then I'm going to go get the study. And I'm like, if you have sleep apnea and you are trying to optimize your metabolism, it's not going to work as well, if at all, as if you just treat the sleep first and then everything else will fall into place. And Dr. Carey's nodding. I want you guys to see that she agrees with me. (laughs) Yes, Carrie does. And I actually, what I was going to add to that is you don't have to be overweight to have sleep apnea. I had plenty of what we'd consider normal weight 
men and women who rolled their eyes at me or their partners were like, please send them for a sleep study because they are snoring or having obstruction or their wearable told them. And sure enough, it had nothing to do with excess adipose tissue and everything just oral maxillary design or loss of estradiol, going into menopause, genetics, whatever you want to call it. And I hope that's important for people to know that if they're looking at themselves thinking, I'm not overweight, that can't be me. Sure, it's more common in those who have excess adipose, but it absolutely doesn't have to be. Go get evaluated. Ah, I love it. Okay. I know. Guys, we're going to keep doing these episodes, which I'm personally pumped about. means I get to hang out with Carrie more. But same. Yeah. If you want to ask us your questions, you can do that. DM us on Instagram. We're at Rupa Health on Instagram. We're going to check through and try to aggregate the questions that we get. We do get a lot of questions already, but what we're doing now is trying to see what are the themes that come up? What are most of the people asking about? You can also get on our radar. Make sure you've gone and given the podcast a five-star rating. Follow us on YouTube. If you subscribe, then you'll get alerts from us when we post new episodes. And at some point, we're going to start checking the YouTube too. So you can even comment on the YouTube video and let us know what are the questions you've got as you listen. I wish you guys would have covered this more. I actually have a detail that I wish you would have shared about this. The only way we know is if you tell us, we designed this podcast for you. One of the ways that you can let us know if we're doing a good job or let us know how to help you more is to reach out. Please reach out and we'll get to your questions in the next episode. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We have one quick favor to ask you before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? Our whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing and we appreciate it so much. We'll catch you next time on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast.